Welcome to the Community Development Podcast. A podcast dedicated to community development practice and approaches, sharing our learning and connecting the workforce. My name is Russell. And it's welcome to episode 30. My name is Russell and... Um, I have the very great pleasure today of speaking to Christian Noakes, the author of an article I encountered in, in Peace, Land and Bread um, back in the last year, actually. So we've, we've, been, we've been talking about doing this for quite some time, actually. So it's great that we've finally got around to it. The article is called Displacement of the Dispossessed, Community Development Under Capitalism. I'm sure this happens to you, to listeners. Every now and again, you, you read an article and just kind of go, wow, that has just broken down some really complicated things into understandable accessible language challenged some previous kind of understandings and and, and conceptions and assumptions you just want to tell everybody about this article which is what i did pretty much and and so it's like as i said it's a very great pleasure to have um, the author of that article christian noakes hello christian hey russell thanks for having me on welcome to the podcast uh you're in atlanta in georgia what else do people need to know about you uh, well, I'm an associate editor for the journal Peace, Land, and Bread. I've got a master's degree in sociology, dealing specifically with issues around uh, race and urban studies. Uh, I also have a lot of experience outside of academia around housing and development, both in terms of activism, but also some NGO work uh, dealing with issues around fair housing and uh, housing discrimination, uh, as well as things such as like eviction, which is becoming a a pretty pertinent issue, um, even more so. As reflective of that, there's a very strong housing emphasis, isn't it, isn't it in the article? You're talking about programs that maybe certainly UK-based uh, listeners to this won't necessarily be familiar with, called uh, sort of Hope Six, and there's some, uh, I suppose, sort of policy jargon, if you like, in relation to things like community benefits agreements, and, and there's some other kind of language um, in in that. The Choice Neighbourhoods Initiatives was a, was a, was another one I read. I think those who get into this, I think people will be able to see certain similarities, even though the program names change and, and from, from from jurisdiction to jurisdiction some of the underlying principles and assumptions and that, that kind of acquiescence essentially to, to capital accumulation by, by pretty much everybody involved in these programmes, um, I think is a fairly standard thing wherever you are. What was your motive, obviously you're involved with, uh, with Peace, Land and Bread, but what was your motive specifically behind this article? I guess there's a few different interrelated reasons. I think the most immediate is that housing is, is an issue that affects me directly. Uh, it affects a lot of people in the U.S., I am not originally from uh, Atlanta. I'm actually from California, which has some of the worst issues with affordable housing, um, a lot of homelessness out there. So the general area of housing was always just very obvious uh, for me. Uh, but I also, within my studies, I also focus, I tend to focus a lot on sort of the intersections between uh, political economy and ideology. And that's sort of how I tried to uh, get at the issue of gentrification in this paper. And that's the headline sort of word then, I suppose, in respect of uh, 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 sort of like an entry point then into what we're trying to to summarise then in terms of the paper. It's not a lengthy paper. I think uh, the top of the, the top of the job, which I think is always a, a very helpful thing to put when you read it online stuff, it says it's a 19-minute read and uh, it, it, and the time flies by when you're reading it. As I said, I, I absolutely loved it. Gentrification is a word that you are particularly skewering. I think it's fair to say it's interesting you used the word immediate a moment ago is that because I read it when I read it I sensed there's an urgency behind this article it wasn't just a 
reflective. It's thoughtful, but not in a, in a reflective sort of way. They, they really felt to me this this urgency to get some stuff off your chest, as it were, but that says, hang on a minute, that this word has just been, for far too long, has just been left unchallenged, uncritiqued, um, and, and even worse, dressed up as a, as a very positive or these other terms used in which to, to obscure the, the negative impact that, that the processes of gentrification have. Would that be right? That urgency is there? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, in terms of your, your last point with sort of covering it up, I feel like generally we've we've gone through a time, maybe it's it's different over there, but we sort of passed this, this time where we're trying to battle this idea of gentrification, whether or not it's positive. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like a lot of developers aren't trying to play that card. Now they're just mm-hmm. saying it's it's community reinvestment, yeah. you know, uh, which brings up a whole lot of issues as far as what their definition of community is. Yeah. So, yeah, and there's long been that that trend of just let's just tag the word community onto something and it immediately just softens mm-hmm. and is designed to make something a, a, a appeal and to be more palatable. One of the things that you you say early on in the article is this sense that a key part of the process by which gentrification happens or is encouraged to happen is the stigmatization this territorial stigmatization it's a in, in simple terms an area and its its inhabitants its people get get run down they get tarnished and reputationally um, criticized and, and, and all of those sorts of things is that almost a, a prerequisite for gentrification or is it just a, a byproduct of it Oh, I definitely think it's it's a prerequisite. Um, not to say that it's necessarily like the developers are creating these things. It's kind of bigger than, than that. Mm-hmm. It tends to tie into larger ideas that a society has around, say, race or ethnicity, uh, class, of course. But, uh, you know, the specifics can change, I guess, in context. But mm. You know, areas of disadvantage will tend to be portrayed as you know, lazy, as, as, as feckless, as work shy, as permissive and all of those sorts of things. And certainly other, other working class communities that I'm familiar with, certainly ones that will have uh, you know, much more ethnically diverse uh, makeup. Again, those similar sorts of labels tend to, get, tend to get applied to them. Is that designed as a way to appeal to the, the, the silent masses then, if you like, um, within a, a local area or a, you know, a constructive constituency of the democracy, it's just a way of just you know buying their approval to to do something. That that sense that something must be done, and therefore let's have these programs that are publicly funded to the tunes of billions of pounds or dollars. Or is it in more a way targeting the actual individuals themselves? Because to me, these people, as you as you point out in the paper the, uh, in the article, these people are they're almost immaterial because they're not really they're not really seen as as people. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say that developers are like going out there and like, let's try to stigmatize this area so we can get money. Mm. Um, I think it's much bigger than that and, and spans generations often. But what developers do do, they, they come in and see that opportunity to, you know, get the highest amount of profit, which is one of the core assumptions or drivers of capitalism is that it's not just about getting a profit, it's about getting the That's highest profit pop. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so with territorial stigmatization, that tells everybody in society, you know, stay away. Only particular people should be there. Uh, so that means that you get a lot of people that are avoiding it, including like lending institutions. So that actually leads to uh, divestment, which just compounds all the issues of, of working class communities. Uh, and that in turn drives the rent down, which makes it the gap, which called uh, the rent gap. Uh, it makes it that much larger so that developers can essentially 
buy low and sell high, and that's where that you know maximization of, of profit is. So they, they're they're exploding a larger phenomenon that goes beyond their own particular projects. We're all probably familiar with the you know the glossy sales pitches and the the the, the hoardings that, that that get erected around the development areas and, and things like that, or very much use the same sort of bland sort of um, you know marketing short spiel but they build on what tends to be a much wider as you say perception of certain communities in certain areas that you can probably just find even with a very cursory analysis of local media of how these things are portrayed in terms of maybe crime and you know environment and, th- and things like that economy certainly so so this term divestment you, you've touched on it there because i think there's a sense isn't it that when we're talking about maximizing profit there's about okay trying to push that that, that that upper line in terms of the rent gap ever ever higher but the term divestment is really key because for the developers they can maximize the profit by just lowering the the, the bottom line then as it were to that to, of, of that rent gap and i think for most people that with maybe even limited understanding of economics that's probably quite a helpful thing to point out they're actively in, interested in and invested in pushing some of those rent controls down and thus thus able to maximize that rent gap. Have I understood that correctly? Yeah, yeah. So how does divestment happen then in practical terms? What would that mean or what would, might that look like for somebody listening to this, a little, still a little bit lay or a little bit lacking confidence with some of these economic sort of terms and processes? Yeah, yeah. So we have uh, over here uh, a practice that's known as uh, redlining. And this was, historically, it, it started because it, uh, the uh, Federal Housing Association, I believe I could be getting that wrong, actually drew up these maps in different cities to where they actually said, okay, these are the areas that you should loan to. These are the areas that maybe you want to do a little less lending. And then the areas, which is where the term redlining comes from, they were outlined in red, um, most often um, black communities or uh, other communities of color. And these were the ones that the banks just completely stood away from. So working class communities, I mean, to be able to get the certain amount of money not only just to own but also to like live in a lot of these cities you it it takes lending institutions often uh so this meant um there was really no uh lending uh sort of ladder for for people to uh, climb up economically but also with the banks also came all these other institutions that fled the areas and leaving you know what was still there to be sort of dilapidated and so, so is that lending of a commercial nature as well as for you know personal domestic use as well yes so that yeah. you know, people can't invest in their businesses so it just it creates this sense of, of of you know perpetual decline and 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 you know areas that are perpetually sort of run down then inverted commas yeah and that of course affects you know the interrelated issue of uh of work you know mm-hmm. um being able to find work in, in these areas it has become increasingly uh, more difficult yeah and so something must be done, and that something must be these projects and schemes that are again developers will have their you know objectives in, in in mind, but then you might have a range of sort of social programs as well that might be part or fully funded by by the state, by the government, whether you know whatever tier. We're not as federalized in the same sense in the UK as as, as you are in the US, but all all too often this sense that you know we must have some sort of physical. Uh, renewal, some physical investments, physical regeneration, these terms which we'll all be incredibly familiar with, at least having heard them, but not necessarily um, critiqued them um, fully and deeply enough. Again, the sense that, that gentrification and some of the terms used to, to, to mask the impact that it has is, a, again, is a, is a necessary development, not a, 
not a, an ideal, not a helpful, but it's almost mandatory. Is that the case? Oh, yeah. Uh, um, I totally agree with that. And uh, I think one thing that it does is it actually, it doesn't get, gain the consent completely of these working class areas because if you're getting displaced, it's very obvious what's happening. Yeah. It, it gets the consent of, of segments of it uh, and fra- actually fractures the community. Mm. So. Mm. And it could be that these people maybe get sort of places at the table, so to speak, but there's very little power influence that comes with it. And, you know, you think back to Einstein's called a ladder participation. It's just a way of, of massaging, uh, you know, local populaces, of course. But it's a pretty damning sentence. I've got it in front of me. The, the process is thereby reduced to a series of market signals, in inverted commas, in which stigma justifies divestment and divestment justifies gentrification. This kind of sad inevitability of it but almost this this sort of lack of imagination uh, or lack of a will then I suppose actually more than imagination that things can be done in any other way to challenge these things is is outside of that whole kind of neo- neoliberal paradigm isn't it you know there is no alternative this is how it must be done that market that market logic yeah, absolutely and it really is I don't know if it's a term that you all use over there but uh, ecological urbanism which is essentially runs on this idea that all these processes are just natural and, yeah. and that it's just sort of you put one thing in one end and then you get something else at the, out at the other end and it's always the same and that ob- totally obscures the, the role of you know institutions uh. mm. so where do supposedly public interest bodies lie in all of this where are the you know our elected members we would call them local authorities councils but it could be city councils local mayors are they not there to represent our interests in these processes on paper uh of course they do that's what their their job is but i think the issue is when you start to conflate business interests uh in the interests of developers market interests in general conflating that with uh the community which, if you really get down to it, uh, especially with gentrification, where it's something that actually destroys the community, um, they're so fundamentally at odds. So it, that takes a lot of uh, ideology, a lot of uh, masking to actually obscure the, the the antagonism between those two. Yeah, yeah. I think what's interesting as well is the way in which, and I, again, you, you, you set this out ever so well, ever so clearly and understand and, and sort of accessibly for people. Again, these, these neoliberal conceptions of individualism, we're all familiar with us, you know, with, with certain urban areas choked with traffic, choked with pollution because there's one person in their little metal box driving into, into the city centre or the, you know, the CBD or whatever it might be, not interacting with one another on public forms of transport. You know, there's people doing that as well, I do grant you. But the fact that these people are replaceable, actually it doesn't matter if these people move out of the area because someone else is going to come in because we're going to make it attractive for them to do so and we'll invest in the marketing spiel and, and, and all the rest of it. But what happens, and again it's clearly a racial element to this, is I think I think what's really quite tragic is that the fact that the displacement doesn't happen en masse. It's not a group of people all being displaced to another area where they then settle. It's this this continued atomizing impact is that, 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 that communities get broken down because the people that formed them and invested in them, for want of a better word, sort of scattered to other parts of that, that wider area. So there's those, those, those ties that, 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 that bind those people within a locality. And I'm, I suppose I'm focusing more on geography, uh, communities of place and of geography necessarily than of, that of interest and shared characteristics, but there's clearly that as well. Really, really hard to rebuild when people are maybe dispersed to, to other areas. That impact on those social networks is, is massively harmful. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and 
I think it kind of is reflective, again, like you said, a very atomized understanding of of community. So say you have a a group of people. It's treated as if if you take away half of those people, then you still have community. Uh, whereas the sort of definition that I use and that I think a lot of more progressive uh, community developers prefer is that community is sort of that constellation of social relations in and of itself. So if you break that up, then you're automatically doing damage to the community, uh, mm-hmm. despite what developers may say that, you know, they're doing these things for the community. Yeah, yeah. You use the term colonial a lot in the article. That's a term, I did a podcast with a, a, a gentleman called Michael Barkman in Winnipeg back last year. And ostensibly, we, him and I were getting together to discuss some of the, we sort of early in the pandemic, um, some of the uh, responses and approaches that were being adopted by people who do community development to the pandemic and what I looked at spoke to a few different people different scales clearly you know he's based in Winnipeg but had a, a, a remit for the for, for, for Manitoba which is a vast vast province and he used the term colonial colonialism quite a lot and that's not a term that we over here use a lot in community development and maybe we should I don't know but what was interesting and I've said this elsewhere in other outlets is that you know as he's using that term you know I'm it's holding up a mirror very acutely to my, basically my white Britishness, um, as the uh, you know the originators for, for for much of those those settlers over there, those colonizers in his part of Canada. So I suppose the C word in this respect is a is a difficult word for us to kind of get our head around and to, to interpret. What do you mean by it in the context of this article and gentrification? Yeah, I suppose I I I kind of use it a bit. Um allegorical or maybe like in a more literary sense rather than like literal and that's because there there are like some really fundamental similarities so i guess just going back real quick to the the idea of stigmatization part of that actually has this assumption of neighborhood decline uh, reflective of of misuse rather than you know structural inequality so you have this sort of uh terra nullius this land without a people that know how to use it correctly so you either need to come in and bring wealthier people that supposedly know how to use it or you need to teach these people you know quote unquote how to be good citizens uh, and that's really tied up the idea of citizenship and this is really tied up with uh consumer power yeah and greater consumption and and continued consumption and mm-hmm. that throwaway culture isn't it and changing your, your smartphone every two years i think that is helpful actually and it probably serves to help um, certain people feel a little bit more comfortable, um, as it were, with that that um, that term colonial. There is a very patronising, looking down at attitude to the communities that tend to be at the, the sharp end of, of gentrification. And again, it's reinforced in a lot of government literature, government policy, but certainly within local well, and national press for that matter. Um, only on the weekend over here, there was reference to some um, article in a right-wing newspaper talking about, you know, no-go areas for white people. It was, you know, it was very much being sort of anti, anti-Muslim and anti-Islamic. Well, one of the areas was, was Cardiff, where I live, and um, there wasn't even actually any reference to Cardiff in the article because I was curious as to as to where they meant because I didn't know of anywhere of that nature. <laughs> um, and of course, there wasn't actually any reference to Cardiff, but nevertheless, in the the header image, Cardiff is one of the dots on the on the map in the UK as uh, as being home to some of these things. 
I partly resent myself for even you know raising it and, and, and you know the, the risk of people maybe going <laughs> searching the internet for it, but uh, it doesn't deserve their attention. But it's this sense that uh, again, stigmatizing places, making them like I said that, that misuse. I think it's a really good film, that Terra Nullius, um term. Again, that sense that people aren't using space the right way, um, and that it's dangerous for other people to go there and permissive and all of these, all of these things. And there's inevitably a gender aspect to it as well as a racial um, and an ethnic context to it as well. And when you talked about then some of the programs and the policies that that that, that exist there, so hope hope six being one of them. I'm not too familiar with uh, particular policies in uh, UK in the UK, but I would imagine. I'd be willing to bet that the underlying logic is the same and, and a lot of the, the practices are the same. So I guess maybe just to go over some, some general things that listeners might be able to make a connection with uh, where they're at. A big part of neoliberal development is this idea of uh, mixed income development. There is a sort of an assumption that if you if you just bring in wealthier people, that there'll be like a, a positive... Uh, role model for for people that apparently don't know how to be good citizens and there's maybe a reasonable assumption that that it could help with tax base but uh, there's also oftentimes this whole idea of being like a a character example rather Mm -hmm. than just putting in money to the community Mm -hmm. uh you've also got um mixed use which is a combination of um uh, commercial and residential uh, so that again, that if you have these residen- residential areas, it's again conflating this whole business interest with community interest. So it's sort of like a trickle-down economics uh, understanding that like if businesses do good, then everyone's going to do good, you know. And of course, all of these are like neoliberalism in general. They're all focused on market-based solutions uh, rather than confronting structural inequality that actually creates these issues. Mm. And so one of the things that these policies will do, they will try to get concessions out of developers, won't they? And trying to, essentially trying to get concessions out of that, that speculative capitalist uh, you know, accumulation, parks, I don't know, a certain percentage of, of, of affordable housing. An interesting term which suggests that uh, you have lots of unaffordable housing, of course. We know them as, as sort of section 37s over here, whereby you know, a housing developer building X number of houses locally is obliged to put money into certain facilities, like I said, parks or whatever. What's often the case is that the local authorities tend to backtrack. So even the, even the and any number of examples, and certainly Cardiff, where I live, has, has thrown this up to be the case. Where is the actual, the national guidance says that actually a local government can go for so high? And we, we may argue that the, the bar is not high enough and there should be far greater concessions from the developers it comes back to what you were saying a moment ago that on paper should be acting in our interests and representing our interests will actually um, settle for far shorter than than what the the national guidance or or legislation would on paper allow them to 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 aim for so you talk about these community benefit agreements around trying to promote more inclusive community development or more inclusive development that benefits you know the local communities the in-situ communities are these worth the paper they're written on these agreements yeah that's a good question something that i I really struggled with while writing the paper there was at the time a community benefits agreement uh here in atlanta where community members were trying to force uh, both state and private uh developers who were uh partners 
to actually come to the table and sign a CBA. How that played out here is it was essentially like, you have no power, we have no need to, to sign this, just get out of our office. CBAs, uh, things like this, you know, can have a, a positive mitigating effect, but there's such a fundamental power imbalance to where, like I said, they could yeah. just be like, I'm, no, I'm not signing that. Like, they're not going to sign it unless they feel like it's in their interest. There's there's no teeth to it. There's no like really way of enforcing it. it it's a sort of a gentleman's agreement and mm-hmm. nothing else. And again, again, what it does, it sort of encourages as well and sort of acquiesces then at least the sense that you can have, and you refer to it as, as value conscious growth. It doesn't fundamentally move away from concepts of growth um, or as you refer to the growth machine process. It's just that there's kind of slightly more value conscious growth versus you know less value conscious growth. And again, it's just the, the dichotomy here is just remarkable isn't it the sense that actually we all know that you know to have this slightly more benevolent form of growth you have to you know you're only having to talk about these things because we know fundamentally and it's been played out right in front of us in place hiding in plain sight you know much more aggressive harmful destructive both to communities to the ecology and so on of forms of, of, of development in the name of growth what does community development then do because you talk about power imbalance and that tends to be one of the things that community development work has to um, you know, put in the, in the in the crosshairs, so to speak. How do we organise to push to push back against some of this, or how do we organise to subvert it ultimately and have something to replace it that is much more equitable, that invests in in people and communities, that doesn't atomise them, that doesn't dehumanise or depersonalise them and treat them as objects? What what can we what can we do? That's a huge question, and you know, organizers and uh, developers of good consciousness all over the place have have been, you know, really struggling with that one. The very first thing, though, uh, and that if you don't do this, it it's really a a pretty bleak outlook. Is refuse their terms uh, outright. You can't just accept that their form of community or, or that community reinvestment or community development is synonymous with business interests, with profit motives and things like that. Just to make an example of the CBA that we were just talking about, you can't allow them to obscure the fact that, okay, they're doing all of this supposedly in the name of the community. So then why is the community having to come to you and ask for crumbs? They should be getting you know, the lion's share. I wish I had all the answers as far as how to be an effective you know, organizer or decent community developer, but I think if you don't have that right at the outset, then it's bound to get very confusing, very fractured to where you have parts of the community really battling each other, some of them in line with the interests of business. I think you're absolutely right in terms of the, the use of the language. If language wasn't important, they wouldn't be spending huge sums of money on trying to get us to use their terminologies or to not challenge and critique their terminologies and, you know for me i think certainly when it comes to to this sense and and, and you know david harvey writes a lot about it david graber did as well around much missed late david graber this sense that, that that the market operates by its you know by its own logic it's one of the greatest myths isn't it and and and, and sort of magic tricks if you like that it that it that it plays it is not that, that the state apparatus and governments aren't just propping up markets left right and center and we you know we've seen this again played out in 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 plain sight in this last few years with respect to 
financial crashes and bank bailouts and well you know literally in this in the case of the last few years with sort of what we call furlough over here I don't know whether you had it over there but the sense that basically you know the government would pay you to not go to work during the the, the pandemic in order to keep society safe but this sense that the people whose roles on paper are to represent and protect our interests as citizens as communities they are actually more or less in in cahoots with with these these forces of of capital accumulation. You know, I think the starting point for this is is one of Solinsky's um, uh, thirteen rules: pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, polarize it. it. Was his thirteenth? Actually, point out that this is what the authorities are doing. And yes, you know, developers, most of us will have very low expectations of them, frankly, but that actually the people who are enabling it, the people who are acquiescing to it, and some of them might actually be more locally as well, you know, not in positions of, of elected responsibility and power, is a very valid exercise to, to do. But, you know, I don't have all of the answers <laughs> any more than you do, sadly. But uh, I think I think writing the article, as you have done, is, uh, you know, is a necessary step. And like I said, I'll, I'll try and do my best to get it onto onto the radar of as many people as possible. I think it absolutely deserves to be deserves to be read. And it's not just for an American audience. It, it, it certainly has massive, massive re- resonance outside of the US. Towards the, the conclusion of it, I mean, there were several things that you talked about. And sort of rent strikes, for example. And the organising of rent strikes is, is one step, for example. But there was this also this other which I'm kind of interested in around tenants can and should organise under capitalism to resist both neglect and displacement. And I think that sense of neglect, if I understand, I think, what you're talking about, isn't just physical in nature. It's investment in, in social infrastructure it's investments in things like schools and, and health facilities and, and not centralizing things that are you know seven bus journeys away from people who don't have a car to get to hospital appointments and so on have i understood that correctly in the context of your of your article oh yeah absolutely and actually um that uh, particular that neglect side is really on the the stigmatization uh, side and the other with those displacement is on the gentrification side so mm-hmm. it's about mm-hmm. communities finding a way not to get stuck in between those two uh, poles uh, yeah. to where it seems like you either have to choose one or the other you know there needs to be an actual answer for communities yes so that joy you're absolutely right that that emphasis is is, is fairly clear it's, it's not a one or the other it is about focus on the both and i suppose as well coming back to Alinsky, isn't it it's around how do you maintain the constant pressure on both of those targets and both of those sort of processes then as well, I guess, it's, it's incredibly hard. So final point for you, a large part of the solution is, is the building of, of, of socialism um, and an investment or reinvestment in what you call concepts of social relations and collective well-being rather than the atomistic conception of community as a mere sum of interchangeable, quantifiable property so it's investing in those relations those networks those ties even if those are maybe around things that we might not agree with because of one's faith because of you know uh, you know ethical values judgments and it etc etc that form of socialism is is important isn't it because people are having the autonomy to do those things this isn't around sanctioning behaviors and, and mandating how people interrelate and how they build those networks because all too often i see that as well even in more as i said benevolent policy yeah uh, absolutely really when you get down to it it's it's a 
a question of finding a way to empower uh, these communities so that they're not having to go sort of, you know, hat in hand to, to the state or to the developers mm. uh, and that they can actually set the terms for these things, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. If, if people want to keep in touch with you, want to read any more of your writings, what would be the best way of doing that? Um, most of my work you can find on uh, Peace, Land, and Bread. Uh, so the website is uh, peacelandbread.com. I'm on Twitter, though I'm not very active. I believe my handle is at comrade underscore cricket. Or you can email uh, the editors at Peace, Land, and Bread. I believe that email should be up on the, the website. So, yeah, um, if you want to get in contact with me, that might be the best way. Um, but otherwise, I hope uh, readers uh, check out Peace, Land, and Bread. I can confirm that is your Twitter handle because <laughs> I've got it in front of me. Okay. And right. um, I think Peace, Land, and Bread itself is also worth uh, checking out and following as well. It's PLB Magazine, PLB as in Peace, Land, and Bread, PLB Magazine. Is it only available digitally or is it available in print as well? Or is it is, is it only certain selected items available online? How, how does that sort of work? Oh, no, we, we do uh, do print. It tends to be that when we release an issue, the digital will come out immediately and then we'll struggle with uh, the printers to actually get the print out. But it, it usually lags a little bit behind. But yeah, we do offer them uh, both digitally and in print. What um, is, is it just American focus or is it as, as an international focus or, or, or what? Oh, no. Yeah, it's international. Um, I believe actually the person, uh, Sam, who I want to say showed you my article is actually another uh, editor on it. So we, we're international. I've only really skimmed the surface of, uh, of what's available to um, to get involved with. Uh, it was Sam, Samuel Parry, uh, native of, of Cardiff in Wales as well. Um, and I was grateful for him for, for doing that as well. So, uh, as I said, please go out and read it. I'd just like to thank you for having me on and getting a chance to, you know, to get my work out there and to have what, what's been really uh, a great conversation. Thank you for listening to the Community Development Podcast. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at comdevtpodcast, C-O-M-M-D-E-V-T podcast. And to support the podcast and help it share learning, connect the workforce and raise the profile and the merits of community development approaches, why not become a patron at patreon.com forward slash the CD podcast. <laughs>